Please stand as you are able for today's Old Testament lesson from the book of Zephaniah, chapter 3, verses 14 through 20. Sing aloud, O daughter Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has turned away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall, fear no, you shall fear disaster no more. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion, do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a warrior who gives victory. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew you in his love. He will exult over you with loud singing as on a day of festival. I will remove disaster from you, so that you will not bear reproach for it. I will deal with all your oppressors at that time. And I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you home, at that time when I gather, when I gather you, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Charlie, thank you for reading our lesson this morning and uh, greetings in the name of Christ to each of you uh, who are with us in person. We're grateful that you're here, uh, especially as Jim mentioned after the kind of weekend that we've had. And those of you who are worshiping with us online, it is a great privilege to be with you wherever you are in your homes. If you're traveling, uh, it is a great joy for us to share in worship and in the teaching and preaching of the word uh, with you today. I am especially grateful uh, to the liturgical dancers, which uh, if you're interested, if you have children who are interested in that, it also gives you an excuse to run in church, which is also fun sometimes for kids to do. And w what a beautiful expression of joy uh, to sit at their feet today. And Ella and James, thank you. Mason, thank you for your music praise team. As always, we're grateful to you. And, uh, and Jim, thank you for leading us in, in prayer. Drew and Sonola have lit for us uh, the joy candle, and we're grateful for them. You all are good readers as well, worship leaders, and we're grateful to all of you for being a part of this special season and this special day. Well, if you were with us two weeks ago on the Sunday after Thanksgiving, you know that we began a series, an Advent series called Wishful Thinking. And today we have read yet another reading from one of the 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. And as I said last week, they're called minor, uh, not because they're inferior to other prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and so forth, but because of their brevity. And, and many of you like readings or sermons that are a little more succinct or brief. And I'm sorry that I don't always resemble that, but they're called minor, not because they're insubstantial, but because they're succinct. And the book of Zephaniah is contained in just three chapters, that's 55 verses, and it's found in your Bible. Some of you maybe don't know it's there, but it's between Habakkuk and Haggai. And if you search carefully, the pages on the tips of them still probably have some glue on them, and so it may be glued together, and there's a reason for that. And the reason is, I think that Zephaniah is the doomiest, gloomiest prophet in all the Hebrew Scriptures. 
This prophet of God, Zephaniah, served in the late 7th century BCE during King Josiah's reign. Josiah assumed the throne, get this, at the ripe old age of eight. Can you imagine? During Josiah's rule, he brought needed religious and political form to Judah. And though the prophet Zephaniah initially supported these reforms, with Josiah's untimely death in 609 BCE, the prophet knew it was too little, too late. The soul of the nation was imploding in Judah, and Zephaniah could see exile coming, and he could not keep silent. Zephaniah, however, was an equal opportunity offender. It wasn't only Judah that he called out. He nailed all the nations, the Philistines to the west, the Moabites and Ammonites to the east, the Egyptians to the south, and the Assyrians to the north. He nailed them all. In fact, just for kicks and giggles, let me give you just a little taste of Zephaniah's preaching. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, says the Lord. I will sweep away humans and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. I will make the wicked stumble. I will cut off humanity from the face of the earth, says the Lord. End of quote. If Zephaniah were around today in Williamson County, he would be called a whistleblower. He would be called a loose cannon, a hothead, a disturber of the peace. In fact, to me, when you read his prophecy, it sounds a little bit more like the Grinch who stole Christmas than the prophet who foretold Christmas. And if you read it in its entirety, and I recommend that you do that, there are nine oracles in three chapters, and eight of the nine are doom and gloom. We have read the ninth. I learned a new word recently on the internet that has become a part of our English lexicon. I don't know if you've heard of it or not. It's called doom scrolling. Have you heard that word, doom scrolling? The term describes a disturbing phenomenon in our culture. Doom scrolling is the act of spending an excessive amount of time in our technology devoting ourselves to only negative news. Health experts, medical experts, tell us that this increased consumption of predominantly bad news will result in psychophysiological responses. In fact, I read recently that clinical psychologist Dr. Emilia Adeo says, and I quote, our minds are wired to look out for threats, which by the way can be helpful, but the more time we spend scrolling, the more we find those dangers, the more we get sucked into them, the more anxious we become. Says Dr. Aldeo, such grim content can throw a dark filter on how we view the world. The practice of doom scrolling is almost, she says, a normalized behavior for journalists. And it's beginning now to erode our mental, emotional, and spiritual health. Doom scrolling, she says, traps us in a vicious cycle of pessimism and cynicism that actually fuels our cultural anxiety. 
And I would say amen to that. I'm fascinated and intrigued how much of our social media can train our minds to focus on the contentious, the harmful, and the destructive. And by the way, please understand, I'm not suggesting that we become conflict averse. I'm not saying that we avoid the negative or that we deny the reality of the negative. To do so, I think, would be to live in a perpetual state of make-believe. We need our prophets to define reality. And journalists, by the way, are not usually prophets. Zephaniah sounds the alarm in Judah specifically around four concerns. Notice these four issues because I think they're, they're just as relevant in 21st century postmodern world as they were in the 7th century BCE Judah world. Number one, idolatry. In other words, substituting anything for God. Number two, political corruption. Never happens today, happened a lot back in that day, right? Number three, moral and ethical injustice. And number four, spiritual complacency. For Zephaniah, it was that last concern that I think becomes the biggest threat to people of faith. Just complacency, indifference, apathy, lethargy. So opposed was Zephaniah to this attitude, to this mindset, that listen to what he writes in chapter 1, verse 12. Listen to this. On the day of the Lord, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the people who rest complacently on their dregs. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, neither will he do harm. End of quote. By the way, the word dregs, do you know that word? We often used it in a negative way today. Dregs means literally to thicken or congeal. It is a term from winemaking or what we call vinification. When you're making new wine, new wine has to be left to sit with the dregs, right? Or the lees, the sediment of the grapes, long enough to enhance the color and the body. Now, I don't know that from personal experience. I know that because you have told me that that's what happens in winemaking. But if it sits too long in the dregs, you know what happens to the wine? It becomes ruined. It becomes syrupy and spoiled. And using that imagery, Zephaniah says that is exactly what's happening in his own culture in Judah. Moreover, it's not just the people who are complacent, get this, the people are now under the mistaken impression that God himself is complacent, that God no longer cares, that God is indifferent, that God is distant, that God is disengaged and uninvolved in the affairs of his people. You remember the name Benjamin E. Mays, don't you? An American Baptist minister who laid the intellectual foundations for the civil rights movement who said this, the tragedy of life is not found in failure, but complacency. It's not in doing too much, but in doing too little. It's not in living above your means, but below your capacity. It's not failure, 
It's aiming too low that becomes life's greatest tragedy. Reminds me of something Jonathan Sachs, who recently died, former chief rabbi of Great Britain, once referenced what he called the counterintuitive phenomena of Jewish history. Listen to what he said. When it was hard to be a Jew, people stayed Jewish. When it was easy to be a Jew, people stopped being Jewish. And globally, this is the major Jewish problem of our time. And I think that's a phenomena that applies to us as Christ followers as well. Have you ever discovered how convenience produces complacency? For far too long in our church growth emphasis, we have made worship and discipleship so convenient that we become complacent in it. I've discovered the hard way that there is nothing convenient about denying yourself and picking up a cross. I think it was A.W. Tozer who said, complacency is a deadly foe for all spiritual growth. And God is anything but complacent. It's interesting in the prophecies we've been reading last week, we noted that Malachi 3 said something about God that we don't often think, that God is capable of being fatigued. You have wearied the Lord with your words, says Malachi. God can become weary. In Zephaniah chapters 1 and 2, we see that God is capable of indignation, that God can become angry as well. But God is never complacent. And then in our text this morning, we begin to see in the last oracle, the ninth of nine oracles, that God is also capable of experiencing joy. In fact, the last word of all the prophets, the last word of the book of Revelation, is a word of restoration. It's a word of exultation and joy. It doesn't mean there's nothing negative, but it does mean that in the presence of God, there is joy. And Zephaniah concludes his prophecy not as the Grinch, but as the foreteller of joy to come in the presence of God. And he makes it clear that the source of our joy is the company of God. In fact, Charlie, twice in the text that you read a moment ago, Zephaniah says, the king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst, and you don't have to fear disaster anymore. There's joy in the presence of the Lord. Teilhard de Chardin, the French Jesuit priest and paleontologist said, the infallible proof of the presence of God is joy. So where you see joy, Christ is there. Nehemiah says the same kind of thing. The joy of the Lord is our, what, strength. Isaiah says the same thing in chapter 35. Therefore, the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion. And listen, an everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. The psalmist says the same kind of thing in chapter 30, verse 5. His anger lasts for a moment, but his favor lasts for a lifetime. Weeping remains for the night, but 
joy comes in the morning. It's no accident that on the night of Christ's birth, the angel said to shepherds, you don't have to be afraid. I bring you good tidings of great joy. The first miracle, according to the fourth gospel, that Jesus demonstrated was at a wedding party where at the reception he changed water into wine. Wine is the symbol of joy. Where Jesus is, there is joy. And chapter 3, verse 17, in the final oracle of Zephaniah, the prophet actually says that even God can feel joy. Listen to this. God himself will rejoice over you with gladness and he will renew you in his love and he will delight over you with loud singing. I believe that joy is what happens to us when we allow ourselves to recognize just how good life really is. Not because there's nothing negative about it, but because of the countenance and provision and providence of Almighty God in our midst. Drew, Sonola, you lit for us a different candle today. Did you notice it's a different color from the others? That's not because we ran out of purple candles, by the way. That's intentional. In fact, we call the pink candle the Gaudette candle, which in the Latin means joy. The colors of the other candles, the other three, are purple, which signify what? Repentance, which is a necessary means of preparation for the coming of God. But on the third Sunday of Advent, it is our tradition to light a rose-colored candle, and that is the color of joy, because there is joy even in the thought of his coming. I got a dose of it last Wednesday morning. Our staff reenacted the nativity for our preschoolers in the chapel as we've done last couple of years. Adam, our youth director, and Hannah, associate youth director, played Joseph and Mary. Wesley and Casey were shepherds. Jim, Hughes, Jason, Leslie were the wise guys. We even had angels, Julie, Haley, and James. I have no idea why we picked a James as an angel, but there he was in the middle. And Greg played the piano. Dominic was the innkeeper, and I was the narrator. I have to tell you, in 39 years of ministry, I have played every part but one in the nativity. I have played every part except for Mary so far. I was once, as a child, the donkey. Uh, my father said that was a typecast. But I've played every part, and we did it last Wednesday. And when the story was over, when I'd finished reading, here's what we do. We invite each class, line by line, to come up and get a close-up of the manger. In years past, the children, for some reason, just wouldn't dare to get too close. They were apprehensive, they were a little fearful, but maybe it's because of the isolation we've been through in the last 22 months, but on Wednesday morning, they came right up into the manger, close enough to touch. In fact, many of them couldn't keep their hands off the baby, as you can see in that picture. 
They patted his head, they touched his face, and they felt of the hay. Seeing the story through their eyes made me a kid again. And I think all of us there who were adults felt the awe and wonder that they did. And suddenly I realized that we weren't just rehearsing the story, we're a part of the story. We're in it. And it was obvious in that moment that God was in our midst and that we were close enough to touch him. And for a moment, there was joy. With all that's happening in the world today, I think it may be a time, maybe past time, to stop doom scrolling and do some joy scrolling. It's time to do something for someone in need that will bring them joy. It's time to do something with Grace Works, with food baskets. It's time to invite someone to the concert tonight. It's time to volunteer to welcome others for Christmas Eve, for a sponsorship for a child in South Africa. It's time to do something for our friends in Northwest Tennessee and Kentucky. And when we do, we will find our joy as we find our place in the story. Last word, and I'm finished. One of our traditions in the city of Brentwood for the last 17 years has been to have Jim Bergen, who was a member of this church, to read the Polar Express. That's a picture from several years ago, Jim Bergen reading the story at the library here in Brentwood. Every year for the last two decades, on a given night in December, children come in their pajamas and coats early in December to hear the story. In fact, most of Brentwood, their parents would call Jim Bergen the conductor. As you can see, he would dress the part with the dark suit, the conductor's hat, and the paste-on mustache. And he was also one of our beloved scripture readers, member of this church for 43 years, he and Sandy. Jim passed away last February, and I suppose the powers that be at the library, knowing what a loss this would be for the children, they asked one of Jim's boys to do the honors. They asked Steve. I've got a picture of Steve. Now, Steve, to me, in that picture is a cross between Jim Bergen and Ted Lasso, don't you think? <laughs> Steve said they didn't even audition him. They just said, do it for your dad and do it for the children. And so you know what he did? He went over to his mother's house. He found the old bag, the hat, the mustache, the bell, the book. And last Monday night, he took on the mantle and he read the story. He told me the other day, my goal, pastor, was to get through it without breaking down, which I did. And he doesn't know this, but I've heard from some of you that were there that you felt the Father's presence through the Son. And now Steve is the conductor and the story goes on. Does that sound familiar? There's a word for it. 
It's called gospel. The gospel is a never-ending story of hope, of peace, of joy. And here's the thing. The Father has a role for you to play. The Father has a part with your name on it so that maybe you too can be a conductor, a conduit, a vessel of good news. Friends, I'm telling you, we're not here just to rehearse the story. We're in it. We're a part of it. And when you do your part, I can guarantee you that the inevitable result is an indescribable joy. And that's not wishful thinking. That's the gospel truth. Amen.